today we have a double portion, chukat uh, and balak. Each one of these portions, you know, have, you know, lots of messages and lots of lessons. And, uh, you know, we always learn uh, the parsha every week. It seems like a repetition, but we can always find uh, some lesson how to apply it into our lives. So I'm going to try to give a um, something on the uh, two things on the parsha of Chukas and two things on the parsha of Balak. Basically, give us a little bit of a taste on what the parsha is talking about. So we'll start with the opening, with the beginning of the parsha, with the opening of Chukat. So the parsha begins by Daber. Hashem el Moshe vel Aharon lemor. God speaks to Moses and to Aaron saying. Now he tells them like this. Zos chukat haTorah. This is the name of the parsha is chukat. This is the statue of the Torah that Hashem has commanded. I Hashem lemor to tell you. The bear of Israel speak to the sons of Israel. They shall take to you a red, entirely red heifer. Asher ein bo mum that has no defect. Asher lo that a yoke has not gone upon her, meaning they didn't put that cow to work. The verse goes on to describe the procedure, what is done with the cow, and basically the ashes, there's a procedure with, uh, they took a cedar wood, they took a hyssop, they took water, they made a big mixture. A person who has become tummy, a person who has become defiled by touching, let's say, a corpse, touching a body, a dead body, so that person would become Tomei, he would become defiled for seven days, which means that during those days he cannot uh, go to the temple, cannot Beit HaMikdash, he cannot uh, eat things that are Kodesh, that are holy, and the other restrictions that applies until for seven days. On the third and the seventh day, uh, they sprinkle from this mixture that was made from the red heifer, they sprinkle on the person, and then the person goes to the mikvah after the seventh day, and then it becomes pure. That's the discussion of the parsha with all the details of it. But you see the opening words are zos chukat ha-Torah. Chukat means a statue. What is the in this context, what is the meaning of a statue? A statue means that there is a law that you have to follow because this is in the rules. It's not something which is explainable. I remember an incident when I was young and I, uh, I uh, was once flying uh, to Israel. I guess I was coming back. I was under 21. I believe so, uh, but people would always encourage you say get the duty free 
get the uh, some mashka, get some liquor, and because you get it cheaper, and then bring it to New York. So I didn't know. So when I come there, the guy asked me, "You have any liquor?" I said, "I have liquor," and so he says. Um, Oh, you're not supposed to bring in liquor. You're not 21. You're 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 not supposed to bring in the liquor. He says so. If you want to pay, uh, you know, a fine for bringing it in, then go ahead. But like this, you can't let me bring it in without paying the fine. So I said to the uh, border patrol, whoever was there, I said to him, the on the. Um, uh, uh, I said, well, I don't understand. I started asking, you know, I'm a, a Talmud student. I said, I don't understand. If it is prohibited for me to bring it in, so what is it going to help if I if I pay the fine? And if you're going to say, you know, that it's okay, so why should I pay a fine? How is the fine going to change the fact if I'm not allowed to bring it in because I'm under 21? So what what's the logic behind it? So he says, look, that's the statue. <laughs> so, that's the law. He says, I don't know. You know, you have questions. I don't know. This is the law. So there are certain things that you know are statues. In the Torah, mainly when it talks about laws of purity, impurity, those are not logical things that we can comprehend, understand, explain. I mean, we're not talking about physical impurities, imperfections, defilement. We're talking something spiritual. So what happens? So you touch the dead body. So what happens? You touch an insect. I mean, what, what, what happens to you? Really, you wash your hands, you clean yourself off, and you're fine, you're good to go. No, but spiritually, you become tainted. But those are the laws that are called chukot, chukim. Chukim means statues, which means that we don't have a rationale, we don't have an explanation why we do them. See, I say there is three categories, generally, that the mitzvot can be uh, included. Three categories. One would be the mitzvahs, those uh, commands that have a logical explanation. So, like many things we understand, honor your parents. So that's something maybe we can understand. It doesn't take uh, so much uh, explanation why one should honor their parents because honoring parents is a something that they gave you, they brought you up, they're your elders, they, you should honor them. I don't say, a lot of times kids don't understand why they need to do that. <laughs> they, kids don't know why they have to honor their parents. But that is the logical. But and then you have, you know, many mitzvot. You shouldn't steal. Uh, you should uh, not cause other people pain. You know, there's different things. Actually, the Talmud says that there's a lot of laws that one could learn from animals. We can learn various different things that make sense. Those are called, those categories are called mishpatim. Those are laws that have logic to them. Then there's another category of laws which are called edos. Edos means testimonials. Say, for example, you're talking about Shabbat, talk about Passover, holidays. These are not, these are commemorative events. We celebrate Shabbat 
to commemorate that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. We uh, commemorate Passover to commemorate the exodus of Egypt, the great miracles that God has done to the Jewish people by taking us out of Egypt. Uh, And so on and so forth. We have all the various different kinds of testimonials or remembrance that we remember various events. Those are called Edot, that's the second category. But this third category is called Chukim. Chukim means statues. Without a law, without a, without a reason, without a rhyme, we don't have an explanation. It's just Hashem said that you got to do that, and He's not explaining Himself. Okay. This law of the Paraduma is sort of considered to be one of the main laws that is not understood, because some of the details of in this law are really uh, surprising. It's paradoxing. So, for example... One of the laws says that the person that does the sprinkling on the person who uh, you're purifying becomes defiled himself. He has to go to the mikvah. The person that he's sprinkling on becomes pure. And the person that is doing the sprinkling becomes tummy. doesn't make any sense. It's, it's illogical. So it says that even King Shloima, he says that he was wise so that even the ordinary chukim he uh, would understand. He could understand, even though most people don't understand the reason for the chukim for the statues, but Shlomo HaMelech was the wisest of all human beings on the earth he can understand them. But yet when it came to the law of the Paraduma, he said I mean I thought I was smart but it's still far from me, I don't understand. So that's why uh, this is also a chukah. That's why it's called Zos chukah. But the question really is, the verse doesn't say Zot chukat hapara. This is the statue of the para, of the heifer. It says this is the statue of the Torah. One, from, one understands it means that amongst all the statues, this is amongst all the chukim, this is the chukah of the Torah. But why does the Torah say, why chukas ha-Torah and not ha-para? This is the chukah of the heifer, of the para, of the cow, not the chukah of the Torah. So here, uh, we know that actually the verse here is telling us, zos chukat ha-Torah, that the Torah in general, not only these mitzvahs, are in the level of chukat ha-Torah. That means that even if you have mitzvahs that have reason, that we understand, still we do them because they are the will of Hashem. Hashem commanded us to do so. So while one can say a certain mitzvah, I understand why we do it, but we're told over here, chukat ha-Torah, that all of Torah should not be performed because we understand the reason for it, but we do it because those that is the will of Hashem. If you notice in the blessings that we do, before we do a mitzvah, we always do the blessing. So when you're lighting the Friday night, the Friday evening, the Shabbos candles, you say, Asher Kiddishanu B'mitzvotav, and then you say, Vitzivanu. Vitzivanu, you've instructed us 
So basically, we're saying to Hashem, you have sanctified us, and you have commanded us to do the mitzvahs. So therefore, a person that does the mitzvahs is really doing the mitzvahs as an observance of the mitzvahs of Hashem. So, really what it means to us, uh, we know it says in the Mishnah, the Mishnah says, a person should not sit and weigh the mitzvahs of the Torah. So, you say, look, I have one mitzvah which seems to be more important than the other mitzvah, and therefore I'm going to do this mitzvah because that is a more important mitzvah. You know, today people get involved in various mitzvahs that they feel good about. So social justice, uh, charity, equality, various different things they feel good about. And maybe other mitzvahs which are not so much speaks to them, uh, they are not so careful. So the Mishnah further says you have to be careful in a light mitzvah the same as in a strict mitzvah. Some mitzvahs, we don't consider them to be so important. They're considered to be light mitzvahs. And then some mitzvahs are more strict mitzvahs. The Torah, the Mishnah says, uh, sages tell us, you have to be careful. Why? Why? One can argue, look, we have some mitzvahs that are only from rabbinic order. How do they come? The rabbis... The rabbis ordained to do that mitzvah. Uh, how could you say that you have to be careful a mitzvah that was ordained by the rabbis should be treated just like a, a stricter of the Torah? Be careful with a rabbinic mitzvah like fasting on Yom Kippur, say for example. But how could this be the same? Because... Uh, if you're not careful with something of the rabbi, you're just like touching at the edge, the rabbi, you're touching at the edge of uh, objection to Hashem. But if you're doing something which is violating a Torah, you are uh, really going against Hashem, what he written in the Torah. Who, who, who is the one that defines what is an important, a rabbinic mitzvah, and a Torah mitzvah, that has been defined by the Torah. So that means that the Torah itself tells us that this is seemingly more important than the other mitzvah. How could we tell you, how could the Mishnah say that a person should be careful with everything? So, this is the whole idea uh, over here of Chukas HaTorah, that while Hashem expresses his will in various different details. Some are very, very strict. Some are less, seeming less important. But yet, they are all Hashem's will. When we look at it from perspective, what does Hashem want you to do? When are you fulfilling Hashem's will? We can't split Hashem's will. He says, well, he wants you to do this a lot, he wants you to do this a little. No. The will is the will. So, which basically means like this. You know, of course, 
Uh, how much damage do we do to ourselves uh, by not listening to a rabbinic mitzvah? Not as much as we do by not listening to a Torah mitzvah. In other words, if we are going to choose and only going to do one mitzvah, of course, we should do first the Torah mitzvahs. But when you come from the perspective of the mitzvah, that it is the will of Hashem, so the will of Hashem doesn't make a difference if it's a big or small, you're still not doing the will of Hashem. So therefore, uh, it's very important to... um, very important to be careful of everything and for each individual to always make sure that you do everything. And the Rebbe says that really this also applies in our interpersonal relationships. Uh, sometimes people get involved uh, with other people trying to reach out to them, help them, whether it's spiritually or physically, emotionally, financially, various different ways. So sometimes one thinks that, okay, if I could make such a big difference in somebody else's life, I'm going to change them around, I'm going to help them so that I'm going to make such a big difference, then I will get involved. But sometimes people think, you know, I'm not in a position that I can really make a big difference in the other people's life. First of all, people don't think that they are learned enough, they're smart enough, they don't think they have enough money, they don't think they have enough talent to be able to really make a difference in people's life. So they say, okay, listen, if I can't change the person around, I can't help him fully, uh, then why bother? So here we have the, uh, the lesson that doing what Hashem wants Helping a person a little bit, when you're talking about the point of it, just to bring him a little bit of light, even though it's just a little, but you bring him, you're connecting him to Hashem, you're connecting him to what's good, you're helping him a little bit. From that perspective, you have changed the person around, even if it's just a very small thing. And certainly it applies in our own lives. A lot of times people aren't ready to do everything. They're not ready. They're not capable of doing everything. I shouldn't say not capable because everybody is capable, but not ready. At this point, they're not ready. But yet, it tells us just doing something, just doing one little part, some connection, at a certain level, you are now doing the will of Hashem. So you are actually doing everything that Hashem wants. This is like the chukah from the perspective of connecting to Hashem. You know, a mitzvah is really something which, mitzvah means a command, it's a uh, instruction. But a mitzvah also means a connection. Every mitzvah, little, small, big one, connects us, creates a connection between us and Hashem. Whatever we do, all of a sudden there is a connection. We have to imagine Hashem, who is infinite. How can Hashem, the infinite, connect to a finite human being? And then we say, well, any mitzvah you do, 
the mitzvah is a connecting piece. You are being connected with Hashem. If you do something that Hashem wants, in that moment you are connecting to Hashem. Because it's as if to say that Hashem needs you, or Hashem is asking you to do something for Him. So Hashem in His infinite, unimaginable greatness is saying to a little inferior human being, you know what, if you do this small little act, you're connecting with me, you're doing a mitzvah. So even though logically a person who goes and puts in a nickel into the charity box, and he said, what is my nickel that I put in going to accomplish already? But the truth is that every mitzvah, even the small of mitzvahs, is a connection to Hashem that connects you and brings that greater connection. Who has commanded us. Of course, one who can do more should do more and not be satisfied with doing less. But yet the lesson is that one's small actions still have a major impact because they are the connecting piece. They connect you to the source. You know, the wire isn't important what the wire is made of. The wire is as long as the electricity falls, flows through it. Even a small wire is what connects the person to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's, the, uh, that's what we learned in the beginning of the Parsha of Chukas. And now I want to jump towards the end of the Parsha, and I want to read you a story that I'm not sure that everybody is familiar with that story of the Chumash. You know, in the story of the Chumash, about the copper snake that Moshe Rabbeinu made. Are you familiar with that? I see Janice is shaking her head. I'm not sure then. And Nancy's yeah, shaking her head. Sorry. And Sarah has a video off, so I can't see, as well as Esther, so they're not shaking their heads, so I can't see. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. I know, okay. I know the story. Oh, you know the story. Okay. Yes. But I'm learning a lesson from it. I just thought it's not such a, uh, not such a famous story. Usually, most of the people, uh, they learn the beginning of the Parsha, and by the time they come to the end there, they don't make it there. So this is the stories. I find that people are more familiar with the stories that are at the, end, at the beginning of the Parsha than those that are at the end of the Parsha, just because they are where they're located. And, um, you know, even it says even a Torah that stands in the Holy Ark also needs to have a good fortune, needs to have a mazel, needs to have luck. Why? Because, you know, when it comes to reading the Torah, you take out one of the Torahs to read from. So the other Torahs that are sitting there idle, they're kind of jealous of the Torah that's been taken out, is being used. They're just standing there in the ark and not being used. So it says you need a mazel that they should choose you to read from you so that each Torah wants that have the privilege so that in the shul they should be reading from the Torah, from that particular Torah. So each pasuk wants to be discussed, wants us to learn something from there. So anyways, in the end of the parsha, it talks about uh, the Jewish people again are uh, once again complaining against Hashem, against Moshe, and they say, Lama helisunu mimitzrayim why did you take us up from Egypt? Lomuz Bamidbar to die in the desert. 
there is no bread, there is no water, we are already disgusted with this bread, that's the mana they were saying, it's the lechem haklokel, they called it lechem haklokel, which means the bad bread, because from the mana there was no leftovers, they just consumed it and it all went into their limbs, but they called it lechma klokil because it's going to ruin them. Eventually, it's all going to blow them up. In any event, so the verse says in verse six, by shalach Hashem ba'om es hanechoshim hasrofim. So God sends against the people the snakes that burn. Burn means Rashi says that means they have a poison that burns. And they killed the person with their poison. So it says, So they bit the people, and a great many of the Jewish people died. And then it says, So the people came to Moshe. They said, We have sinned. We spoke against Hashem, against you. Hispalel el Hashem, the Yosir me'olenu esanochosh. Pray to Hashem, let him take away from us the snake. Vayispalel Moshe ba'ad Hashem. So Moshe prays for them, ba'adom for for the people. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe. So God says to Moshe, Asay lechos sorof. Now I want you to pay attention over here. Hashem says to him, make a sorof. What is this sorof over here? This was a sort of, as we'll see, Moshe Rabbeinu, in the next verse, Moshe Rabbeinu made a copper snake, which was a sort of, which was a burning snake. The sort of over here refers to a poison that he made a snake out of copper, that has a, a, a kind of a snake that has a sort of. But the verse doesn't say make a snake. It just says sort of. And the Shem tells him, Sim al nais, put it on a pole. Kol Anybody who got bitten looked at that sort of, that snake, that copper snake that Moshe Rabbeinu created, Hashem said to Moshe to create that, if you looked at that snake, then you're healed. So, Rashi says, Rashi brings down, what is it? The snake was the one that killed? Or the snake was the one that vitalized them? Seems a, a little bit that if you don't look at the snake, then you die. If you look at the snake, then you live. What is it about the snake that causes? What Rashi explains what it really means is, when you look upwards towards Hashem, that's why the snake was placed up there, and you slave your heart to your Father in Heaven, then you would be healed. If not, you would pass away, which really means you did teshuva. So it wasn't the snake, as Rashi said. But look further in Pasuk Tess. It says, Vayas Moshe Nechash Nechoshes. 
Moshe made a copper snake. It doesn't say Moshe made a sort of like what Hashem told him. Over here it says that Moshe made a copper snake by Yisimeyu al and he placed him on the pole. If the snake bit a person, then he uh, looked to the copper snake and he lived. So, so why in the command to Moshe, it does not say a copper snake? Again, in the command to Moshe, it just says, make a sorov. didn't say make a snake. But over here it says, make a copper snake. Is that Rashi saying the copper snake? No, the Pasuk, look here. Yeah, you don't even oh, see that. Vayas Moshe, Nechash Nechoshes. Nechash Nechoshes means a copper snake. Okay. But the Torah here before says, Hashem says to Moshe, I say sorof. Make to you a sorof. Now, what is a sorof? So, uh, a sorof we know is a snake that bites with a poison. As Rashi said before, the Pasuk says uh, that Hashem brought on them Hanachoshim. Hasrofim. He brought those Nechoshim Srofim. And by Nashku Esha'om, they bit the people, and a great many people died of Israel. And Rashi says over there that they burn with their poison. So over here, it's understood that make a snake that is a sort of, that has a poison, but it doesn't say to make it out of copper. And Rashi actually says. Hashem didn't specifically to take him make it out of copper. Hashem just told him to make a snake that is a sorof, basically, but didn't tell him to make it out of copper. But because the word copper and the word snake in Hebrew have a similar nechoshes, nechosh, those nechoshes means copper, nechosh means snake. Because the languages are very similar, Moshe said, okay, let me make the snake, let me make it out of copper. But there is something missing, it would seem like it's missing over here, that in the and that in the Torah we don't find the uh, language to make a snake. So I want to uh, relate to you uh, a statement that is said in the in the Medrash, in the Yalko Chimoyni. Interesting thing. Uh, it says like this, they went and they asked the Torah, what is the punishment for a sinner? Um, they asked the Torah, if a person sins, what is his punishment? So the Torah answered, well, if he brings an atonement, he brings a korban, he brings the sacrifice, he brings an asham, and then he will be atoned for seems like the Torah, because in the Torah it says there's various uh, prescribed in the Torah, the various different um, sacrifices you bring. If you did a sin, you bring a sin. So, very simple. If you did something wrong, what do you do? You bring a sacrifice and you be atoned for. But then it says, they asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they asked Hashem, what should a sinner do to be forgiven? 
Hashem didn't say no karbonish, no nothing. He says, let him repent and he'll be forgiven. Didn't say anything about a korban. So, the question is, if you just bring a korban, like what the Torah said, don't you also have to do teshuva? If you just bring a sacrifice and you don't repent, that shouldn't be enough. And we know that's not enough. So how is it really different what the Torah answered and what Hashem answered? The Torah says, bring a korban. Hashem says, do teshuva. But even if you bring a korban, you still have to do teshuva. So the explanation is like this. The Torah response is that if you have done Teshuvah, so then what happens is if you've done Teshuvah, so let's say you've done something intentional. You've made a mistake or not a mistake or violated intentionally. So when you do Teshuvah, that intention becomes like a accident. So we take it away. It's no longer, once you do Teshuvah, it's no longer severe as an intention, now we consider that to be like an accident. But it's still, you have a sin still, so you still got to bring the carbon, because the carbon helps for a mistake. But what Hashem tells you really is, no. That even if you've done something intentional, if you do repentance, you're going to be forgiven even if it was intentional. They become like merits without even bringing a korban. So why is it that when you ask the Torah, you have to bring a korban, you have to bring a sacrifice. When you ask Hashem, you're forgiven fully. And the answer is, the Torah has limitations, has amounts. So even if you do teshuva, it cannot totally forgive you. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu Hashem, who's beyond any measure and beyond any limitation, who can tell Hashem what to do? If you do all the sins of the world, you really don't do anything to Hashem. Hashem is, you can't touch Hashem. If you do Teshuva, Hashem can take your intentional sins, can turn them into merits. Without anything else, just turning to Hashem, you had Hashem, that's what Hashem's answered. Do Teshuva and it'll be forgiven to you. So, what has it got to do with our case? The idea of a snake is, as the Rebbe explains, that um, you can't uh, you can't the Torah can't tell you that the snake can heal you. The snake represents in the Kabbalah like the first snake that came to uh, Eve, persuaded her to eat from the tree of knowledge. The snake represents the level of the other side, the level of klipa.
So, the klipa cannot be the actual healer for the Torah doesn't say it was the nochosh that healed. The Torah says make a sorof, a burning, but not the nochosh, because the snake in essence as it represents the level of klipa cannot actually uh, change around and become the healer. But it is actually not written in the Torah, but when you look up to the snake, when you look up to Hashem, and when you turn to Hashem with Shuva, so even the snake can be turned around and be made into Kedusha. So that means there are certain things, just like the Korban, the Torah says that you have to do certain things. And, and basically what it means, you know, there's a, there's a process for people to follow, and there's a process for people to be forgiven, there's a process from which how we can lift ourselves step after step. That's a normal process from the Torah, from the limitation, and that's the way we follow in an ordinary manner. But sometimes we connect to Hashem in such a direct way that we're sort of surpass the Torah, we go beyond the Torah. We connect to Hashem Himself in which the power of our connection to Hashem is so strong that there is no limitations over there. So even if we didn't follow all of the prescribed and all of the processes, still Hashem takes us out, pulls us out, and brings us up to the highest of levels. We find in certain situations in the Gemara and the Medrash about certain individuals, they were sinners all their lives. And before they died, before they passed away, they really did teshuva. The Talmud tells about a story about one of these people who put his head between his knees and he was crying so bitterly, crying, crying, and he expired and he died over there. And then one of the great, the rabbis of the Mishnah, Rebbe, Rebbe cried and he says, Yesh kona alamoi b'sho achas. Somebody can buy his world in one hour. How long we work and we labor to do what's right in Hashem's eyes, when we work in an ordinary, in an ordinary way, you know, it's like saying, some people work very hard to get, they bring a dollar to a dollar, they save a little bit, they invest a little bit, and they work hard all their lives trying to accumulate some money, right? And then this guy goes and he plays the lottery and he wins it in one shot. These people are working all their lives and working hard. And he comes in one knock, in one shot, he goes ahead, wins the lottery and becomes a millionaire. Didn't have to go through all these processes. He just gets it right up there. This is monetary talking, but we're talking about connecting to Hashem. We work so hard all of our lives to try to get close to Hashem. And it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication. But sometimes a person gets that privilege that in one shot they're able to turn themselves away, do such powerful teshuva that they change themselves around 
And that's why Rebbe was crying. And he said, Yesh koine achas. One can buy his world in one hour, which means, doesn't mean that one should go ahead and not do things and uh, expect, you know, it's like saying somebody, I'm not going to work all my life, but I'm going to win the lottery. Well, who says you're going to win the lottery? So you better do it the normal way. But if you happen to luck out, then you'll luck out. If a person should regularly follow the way we're supposed to do, but sometimes it actually happens that you luck out and you're able to turn to Hashem in the last moment, and that's something even the Torah can't tell you. Because the Torah is beyond... Uh, the Torah is a limited. The Torah is a prescribed, there's a direction that we have to follow. But there is ways to connect to Hashem, to do Teshuvah in a more powerful way. Now we're going to go over to the portion of uh, Bullock. So Bullock, you know for sure, that's the second parsha. So you know that Bullock invited Bilam, who was a non-Jewish prophet, that he should go and curse the Jewish people. And the whole story in the Chumash. And then eventually, getting again towards the end of the parsha, he tries several failed attempts to curse the Jewish people, and he's not successful. So then the verse says, Vayar Bilam, so Bilam sees, Kitoiv Bein Hashem Levarches Yisrael, that it's good in God's eyes to bless Israel. So, Vuleholach Kipam Bipam, Likras Nechoshim Vayoshev Almid Bipanov. So he didn't do what he did before that he was trying to meet up with Hashem to get an inspiration to curse them, he says, no, no, let me try something else. He wanted to go ahead and find fault with the Jews, finding how their misdeeds, and then he said, once he finds them, and then the curse will automatically fall and rest upon them. So what does he do? So looking... So trying to, trying to uh, get him to, to, to sin. So it says, Bilam raised his, his eyes. And what does he see? He sees the Jewish people are all resting Lishvotov. What does it mean he saw them resting Lishvotov? So Rashi says what he saw that all the tribes and the tribes were living separately. And they're not mixed one with the other. One thing. And he saw another thing he saw, that their entrances of these tents were placed in such a way that they should not be directed one opposite the other, so you can't look into your friend's tent. These were two main aspects that Bilam saw that caused him to change his mind again. What he was looking for fault of the Bnei Yisrael, it actually turned out that he saw something which was positive about the Bnei Yisrael. He saw the tribes 
not mixing with each other. And he saw that their entrances were not one against the other. Now, what is this idea that tribes should not be to each other? We know that one of the important things were that the Jewish people were each one counted to their tribe. Unfortunately, if you have a large amount of people, and then there's always stories that might happen, that might take place between women of one tribe and having a baby from another tribe. The Torah tells us that Bilam saw that these tribes are not mixed, which means that the level of the family life was really pure, so that each tribe was with their tribe where they belong. There was no mixed-in tribes in the other tribes. And the second aspect of it was that their tents were in such a way so that one would not look into the other one's tent. So, what does he come on and says? The very famous words that we say in the morning and before the prayers, he said, Ma tovu oholecha Yaakov, mishkin osecha Yisrael. What is these two things? First he says, Matovu, how good are your tents, Jacob? The tents, what he was referring to, is that he saw that the tents aren't directed one, opening next to the other one. And then he says, Mishkinoisecho Yisrael, the way you camp, that each tribe has its own, uh, its own place. That brought about the uh, tremendous level of blessings that he offered to the Bnei Yisrael. So, what do we see over here? He talks about two things, basically. He talks about that their tents are not following, looking into each other. I mean, one can say, big deal. So, listen, that's not such an important thing. So I don't look into my friends, okay. Uh, but you see, even something small as that brought about a change in Bilam's heart so that he started to bless them. So the Rebbe was here talking about, uh, generally speaking, about people to live modest lives, lives of modesty. And, um, and the Rebbe learns a lesson, even in a tent, Matovu O'Alecha Yaakov. You know, uh, a lot of even the very religious people, in the summer months, they go out and they live up in the Catskill Mountains, they go, they go to the country. Now, you know, while people live in the city, and there's a lot of people over there, there's neighbors there, people are careful to, uh, you know, live their lives in a more modest way. But people, when they come on vacation, they are a little bit more loose, and they're a little bit more easier on themselves. 
whether it's their davening, whether it's their study, whether it's their dress, people are more loose about this. But the Rebbe learns the lesson from Ohalecho, Yaakov, modesty as it relates to the Ohel. And the Rebbe uses an interesting paraphrase over here. There is something which is called a person who says, you know what, I'm, let me do sin, I'll live the life of without any restrictions, without any limitations, and then later on, I'm going to repent. That's called echte v'oshuf. I'll sin, and then I'll return. I'll come back. You know, meantime, I'll do whatever I want. I'll enjoy life the way I feel, and then eventually, I will do teshuva. So the Mishnah says that you're not going to have an opportunity to do teshuva. You can't sin because you think that you're going to do teshuva later on. So the Rebbe sort of paraphrases this and says, well, the person says, yes, I'm going to go to the country, I'm going to go to vacation, and I'll sin, but I'll come back to the city, and I'll return, and then I'll do teshuva then. The Rebbe says, no, that's not. We learn over here, the proper way is matovu oholecha Yaakov. Even when you're in the ohel, even when you're in the tent, you have the strength and you have the ability to be able to follow. You see that that brings upon you and your family and about Klal Yisrael, it brings you the greatest blessings as we see from what happened with, uh, with Bilam that this brought about the blessing. And let's do quickly, before we run out of time, one more important part of the portion of Bullock, which is also something, uh, powerful blessings. It's interesting that some of the most powerful blessings that we have came from the evil Bilam. And it came because Hashem turned him around that instead of him cursing the Bnei Yisrael, he ended up blessing them instead. And some of those blessings are some of the most powerful blessings. You know, when they do the Birchat Kohanim and you do the Duchening, there's a special prayer you read when you say that. And one of the words over there you say is, May Hashem take all the curses that people curse me and turn them around, just like Hashem has turned around the curses that Bilam wanted to curse, and it made them all to blessings. So out towards the end of the final parsha in the portion of Balak, Balak says to uh Bilam, I mean, says to Balak. Balak was the king of Moab who hired Bilam to curse the Jewish people. So Bilam says to him like this, Look, I'm going now back to my people. And let me tell you what this people are going to do to your nation in the end of days. He's basically telling him, You hired me because you were afraid that they will destroy you. They're coming up against you. He says, but let me tell you, it's not going to happen now. Right now, don't worry, the Jews are not coming to get you now. But in the end of days, let me tell you, he gives the prophecy of what's going to happen in the end of days. And he tells him, I see 
but it's not now. Ashurenu velokarov. Ashurenu is also a language of seeing, but it's not close. Which means it's not going to happen now, but this is the future. Dorach koichov miyakov. A star will step forth from Yaakov. Now, here we have Maimonides understand it one way, Rashi understands it a different way. Maimonides understands it over here, Dorach Koichov Meyakov means, represents King David. A star will set forth from Yaakov, it's the King David. And then it says, Vekom Shevet Me Yisrael, a stick, a ruler will stand up from Israel. That refers to the Melech HaMashiach, the King Mashiach. So basically, according to Maimonides, these verses are all split in two. Uh, you'll see, it's like a prophecy, it's prophetic, so some of the verses are repeated, it's like duplicate. But according to Maimonides, it's not really a duplication, but rather it's talking about two eras. Talking about the era of David, King David, and it's talking about the era of Mashiach. So, Dorach Koichov Meyakov refers to the era of David. Kom Shevet Mi Yisrael refers to the era of Melech Mashiach. Then the second part of the verse, Umochatz Pasei Moyov, he will crush the ends of Moyov. Who will do that? That's, Mash- that's David. Then Vikarkar, called Bnei Sheis. Bnei Sheis is referencing the nations of the world. Karkar means also destroy. So that goes to Mashiach. So one part, first part goes for David, second part goes for Mashiach. The next verse. Vehoyo Edoim Yeresha. Edoim, the Edomites, that is the place where Esau lived. That will be an inheritance. Inheritance to the Jewish people. The verse that is talking about King David. The second part, Vahoyo Yeresha Seir Oivov. Seir, which is also Edoim. The Heri, that's Esau, will be inheritance to his enemies, which means to the Jews. Duplicate. That refers to Melech HaMashiach. First part is David. Second part, Melech HaMashiach. Israel will be successful. That's the end of the passage. The same thing in Vyerd Meyakov. There will be a ruler of Yaakov. Again, according to Maimonides, it is David. Behevid. Uh, no, actually, this both is Behevid Sorid Meir, who will destroy anybody left over of the city and. Uh, According to Rashi, this changes to the Melech HaMashiach. So, basically, uh, these verses uh, talk about both of the both eras. The error of Mashiach and the error of uh, King David. And, essentially, King David and the king and the error of Mashiach are really very closely related. Because Maimonides says that Mashiach will come, he'll bring back the 
dynasty of David and bring it back to its wholesomeness. Well, we know the story that the Jewish nation was split into two, the ten tribes against the tribe of Yehuda and Benjamin, who were in Jerusalem. And that friction, there was wars, and fights, we'll read in the Nevi'im, we'll read a lot about the various different struggles that took place between other nations, amongst the nations, amongst them. But when Mashiach will come, he will sort of bring it all together. As we read in one of the Haftorahs, he says, the two separate woods which separated them, bring them together. Who's told the Novi Yecheskel to bring them together, to make them one, so that they should be a wholesome nation. And this is all comes to turn around from the evil that Bilam tried to incur on us. And I think that this gives us a sense of courage in all situations, whether uh, we have a situation in which we see nations of the world are attempting to hurt us, uh, whether it is locally in the United States, you know, have all the anti-Semitism, or in Israel, our same thing is we're dealing with plagues that affect mankind as a whole. Uh, you have to know, and they have to, as the prayer, as I mentioned earlier, turn around the curse into a blessing. That Hashem shall be trusting Hashem that somehow, very soon in our times, we'll be able to see that instead of all the death and the suffering and the devastation, that we will be able to see joy and happiness and good fortune. Also coming up, uh, my birthday is coming up in, on Thursday, and during the uh, birthday, it says a person has special uh, fortune to bless and special strength. And um, I'm not sure today is still early, but I'm not sure that I am going to uh, be able to see you or hear you on the uh, um, at that time. I'm going to make a Zoom for bringing on Thursday uh, from 6.30 to 7.30. And I'll send out an invitation. Those uh, are those who are on my WhatsApp will get it. If not, ask me because I'm going to send it out on the WhatsApp. If you're not on the WhatsApp and you want to join from 6.30 to 7.30, it's also coming up on Yud Beis Yud Gimel Thomas, 12 to 13 of Thomas, which is the redemption, the Chagah Geula, of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, that's on Shabbos. So Thursday already is before Shabbos. Uh, so uh, you ask me, I'll give you the Zoom. I don't have it yet, but if you ask me, I'm going to send it out to the people I think that might want it. Uh, but anyways, it's a little bit early, so I extend my best wishes and blessings to all of us in this class, amongst all classes, amongst our community, amongst all Jewish people, amongst you and mankind, that Hashem should bless you all to fulfill your heart's desires for the good, and that everything that you wish for yourself and you hope for yourself, that your hopes, your aspirations, your dreams should be fulfilled in a good, in a positive way, in good health, prosperity, nachas, 
joy, shalom bayit, peace of mind, relaxation, and to go from strength to strength. And Hashem should send us Mashiach, take us all out, all out of exile, and bring us Mashiach Tzidkenu, Bimheri Yemenu, very speedily in our days. Thank you for joining me, and we'll see you again in Mitzvah Shem next